The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyet, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. It's joining me for uh, the uh, less than hour, <laughs> given the truncated space here. Uh, Greg Harmon, who I've interacted with and uh, met many, many years ago. Uh, Greg, for those who are not familiar with your background, just introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get involved in markets? And what are you doing uh, with your firm? Yeah, so uh, my firm is Dragonfly Capital. Uh, it started out uh, when I got uh, laid off from Wall Street in 2009. Uh, started uh, posting uh, charts and uh, and uh, my interpretation of charts on Twitter at that point in time, uh, which led to uh, creating a blog, which read, led to um, s- uh, selling a blog and uh, subscribers, and those uh, subscribers are getting trade ideas. Uh, every uh, Sunday, I send out 10 ideas uh, from uh, a technical analysis perspective on how to uh, trade these ideas using both the stock and uh, option strategies. That has led into uh, managing money for clients as well through a separate uh, uh, business, Dragonfly Capital Managed Accounts, for those that, that liked the ideas but uh, didn't have the time on their own. My background before that uh, was uh, 25 years on Wall Street. Sometime at uh, J.P. Morgan, sometime at uh, State Street, and uh, the last stint was at uh, BNP Paribas. Uh, a lot of dealing with uh, with stock, international stock, U.S. stock, and uh, uh, equity options as well. So my focus is technical analysis and equity options. Okay. Okay. So now you know you and I are both CFA charter holders. You know I've done quite a bit of work with the CMT Association, and you are wildly ambitious in that you have both designations um i'm 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 curious to hear uh your thoughts on which of the two um programs was more challenging and which is perhaps more applicable from a portfolio management perspective because you're talking technical which sounds much more cmt but you know asset allocation i'd argue is much more in the domain of, of being a cfa charter holder right so for for me um it was, uh, you know, I moved back uh, to the States from London in 2000 and uh, was looking to kind of prep a career moving into investment management and uh, in Boston at the time. And it was a matter of you needed a CFA to get in the door there. So I started uh, working on that at that point, And the, the bank put me through that. I didn't know what a CMT was at that time, but I knew I was practicing technical analysis already. So the CFA was difficult, yeah. It's a, a very rigorous uh, set of exams. 
Um, and those of you that have gone about doing it, you you know that. But for those that are on here that uh, maybe are not so familiar with it, uh, it tends to have a pass rate of less than 50% in the first round and uh, even worse than that in the second round before it uh, jumps up quite a bit in the third round when you finally can say that you've passed the CFA exam. Uh, the CMT, for me, because I had been practicing it for you know 20 years, uh, was not such a big deal uh, and kind of breezed through those. But um, there were aspects that I don't use that uh, were kind of uh, interesting to spend some time learning about, like uh, point and figure charts and uh, uh, some other algorithmic type uh, aspects of it. Um, but uh, from uh, the, the, your question there, Michael, about, uh, you know, which is more useful, uh, I think that uh, you need to have the the fundamentals. You need to have the uh, ability to analyze stocks to be able to get into a portfolio management situation. Uh, and once you're in that portfolio management situation, you've you've gone through and you've analyzed stocks and you said, I want to buy this stock and I think it's going to go up to this value uh, or I think that uh, it's going to go down to this value. And you've got the kind of fundamental perspective on it. What you don't have is the the timing on it and the risk management aspect of it, which is I think is the biggest value that comes from uh, the CMT side or the technical analysis side, having the ability to kind of put the timing around it and understand where you might be wrong too, so that uh, you're not just sitting in a stock that's um, uh, that's going to go lower for another uh, you know ten points even though you believe that the the story that it's going to uh, increase in value by fifty percent over time. Why buy it today if uh, if the technicals are telling you it's going to go lower by 10 points and you can get in at a better price in the future? Uh, just because you've done your analysis doesn't mean that because you finished your analysis today that uh, this is the right date to, to go in and buy. You know, the, uh, the criticism around designations like the CFA Charter uh, in particular really relate to this idea that uh, – Evidence supposedly suggests that, you know, having a CFA charter doesn't necessarily make you a better portfolio manager in terms of generating more alpha or more return. And I probably am going to assume it's maybe a similar dynamic with the CMT designation. And I can understand that that reasoning to an extent, right? It's kind of like, you know, what do you call the person that graduates last from medical school, right? It's doctor. Yeah, right? It doesn't exactly. really tell you much, right? But, but right. If, if you were but, – but I often – go back to, you know, whenever somebody critiques uh, people like you, people like me who spent the time and effort that, you know, having the CFA charter or CMT charter doesn't necessarily tell anybody anything about our skill, but it does tell people about our work ethic, right? Because it's a, it's a hell of a grind to go through that process mm -hmm. of, of the exams and, and studying and doing that, obviously, when you have a career. Um, as you look back, do you, do you think that getting the CFA charter, getting the CMT designation were were worth it from a career perspective, right? Because you started your own RA. I mean, you're doing it now, you're you're out there and, and managing money and you've got your content, but do you find that the designations help in terms of brand building or business building? Uh, I don't think that uh, the designations are, are that important in terms of brand building and business building uh, unless, well, let, let, me, let me restate that. Uh, if you're just starting out, uh, and you don't have uh, some kind of designation, it's it's difficult to build a following, right? It's difficult to to start building a brand. Uh, so that uh, kind of like uh, your example with, uh, you know, what do you call the, the last guy graduating med school? There's a filter that gets put in there when you can say that you are a C. 
CMT or you've got the certified financial planner or whatever it is that you're trying to do. That filter shows that uh, you've you've at least put some effort into what it is you uh, you uh, to and in, and not just uh, some um, someone that's uh, woken up in the morning and decided that they were going to start this business. So I think that's the biggest piece of it. Once you patient, then it becomes, I think, less important in terms of increasing and expanding what you're doing. Okay, so that lent, then lends itself into a conversation around uh, market movement this year. So you said, you know, CMT tells you, and and you know, when we think about stock picking and trading, you, t- you, know, you have to figure out the tr- timing and the risk management. And it's funny because I think people think of timing as a way of getting better returns. I'd argue timing is more about managing risk than actually getting mm-hmm. better returns, right? Because in the long run, at least in theory, right, stocks tend to go up, which means timing is not so important for uh, for the upside, right? Much more for the downside. Right. So in a year like this, um, where seemingly everything looks very desynced, and we'll talk about bonds and stocks here for a moment, how do you think about uh, timing when you're in a cycle where it seems like no matter what particular asset class you're trying to time or stock you're trying to time, uh, it's it's like an uphill battle to try to actually manage risk when there's risk everywhere. Yeah, and uh, you, you can you you can actually help yourself out just by going back to like some of the the basic core concepts of uh, of technical analysis and and how do you identify a trend? So that uh, yeah, I look at things like uh, the S and P five hundred, who which had been uh, since uh, the COVID low in March of twenty twenty, making higher highs and then higher lows on the pullbacks. Uh, and continued to do that up until the end of uh, 2021. And uh, when we hit that uh, that high of uh, the year, the beginning of January 2022, uh, pulled back, made uh, made a low, and then bounced to a lower high and a lower low. And that's a signal of a trend reversal right there. So that um, you're not necessarily going to pick the top uh, and be that accurate uh, by understanding uh, your basics about uh, a technical analysis, but uh, as you said, you you do uh, provide some risk protection, some risk management uh, around that. Just with, even with the most basic concepts about uh, you know things are uh, developing uh, lower lows and lower highs. That's not the direction you want to go. And it's interesting, right? Because the um, the CFA curriculum would argue that volatility is risk. You often hear that. That goes mm-hmm. back to even my finance days uh, back at NYU. And I've always made this point that volatility is not risk. It's really doubt. Although when you're in highly volatile states, there is a risk of a tail event. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about for a moment um, volatility in the context of fundamentals and technicals. Uh, do you factor in uh, volatility of different asset classes when you're thinking about individual stocks that you're picking? Are you totally ignoring the volatility dynamic and simply going based on the the way a particular chart looks for an individual company. Talk about the, if you consider the the kind of volatility regime as part of your process. Yeah. So if you look at uh, uh, any stock right now, uh, and I would even use an example, the, the SPY, uh, the, the size of the candlesticks that are being printed now uh, are much wider, much larger. We've had, you know, what, like 100 different days this year where the, the S&Ps move more than 1% on a day. Uh, so that uh, that's not a normal thing. That is that is your increased volatility, right? You can still, within that uh, volatility, uh, within that re, uh, regime where the volatility is there, 
uh, discern what the trend is. And then it's a matter of uh, managing uh, position size to uh, impact the differential for uh, the possibility that are, uh, in general, going to be bigger now than they have been over the past. So you, you look at things like um, the June bottom and a move up and finally uh, uh, the first time that the, the SPY made a higher high at, um, uh, as a potential for uh, a trend and even with the pullback we have now, as long as it stops at uh, a higher low, we have that tr- that potential for a trend reversal. But you have to you can't just like toss all of uh, your money back into the market because we've got these um, these big range days like our three percent day last week, uh, which means that uh, instead of you know exposing yourself at a say a two percent position for an individual stock, maybe. You want to do it at uh, a third of that because of uh, the the volatility, so that you can limit your losses. Right, and that, that position sizing point is an important one. It's like I keep making this this argument that what you own matters a lot less than how much you own of it. Right, and, and yeah. when when thinking broadly, too many people focus on a chart and you know buy here, sell there, but you rarely hear people talk about you know they're managing of how much to allocate to that particular stock idea. Now on the, on the volatility side, the issue with volatility, as you know, is that correlations tend to go to one when you're in a highly volatile mm-hmm. states, right? In the stock market, which is funny to me because people say when you're in a bear market, Oh, this is a stock pickers market. And my response is how can it be a stock pickers market if everything correlates more tightly in a bear market? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it's yeah, really I mean, we've right? been seeing that uh, we've been seeing it for like three or four months now. It's the, and now it's like uh uh, from a chart watcher's perspective, from a TA perspective, uh, every week, but the analysis that I put out, it's basically the same content for the SPY, the, uh, the Russell, and uh, the NASDAQ. They all look the same now. Like you said, all, all the correlations go to one and uh, when there's a, a hugely volatile market. So what do you do when you're in that kind of a period? So you've got, you know, you've several uh, uh, ideas for stock charts, five charts or five stocks that you kind of pick that are interesting to you. Mm-hmm. But how do you how do you think about that that dynamic, right? Because you can again, you can choose all these great chart setups, but at the end of the day, beta is going to swell any kind of conclusion you might have about the likely path. Yeah. So looking at it then from a short term perspective, uh, uh, you've got the, this idea of where the trend is going, right? That um, uh, so from January back until. Uh, you were pulling a downtrend, but there are bounces along the way. So what do you look for? You look for stocks that uh, have uh, other characteristics other than just straight price activity. So things like momentum that uh, show that they're in ranges where uh, they've got a lot more room to run to the downside than other stocks do and, and look to take advantage of them on the downside or when we're in a, a bounce back up, like from June through to middle of August. Look for those stocks that haven't quite turned around yet, but are on the edge and not necessarily buy them, but look for them to to make some kind of a significant uh, price move. So over some kind of resistance level or uh, show that they've confirmed a reversal, that they have more room to catch up to those ones that uh, have been like the average stock or the leaders along the way. Both long. So this, I, I, and I, I knew this was going to be a question. I think this is a good discussion because... This lends itself to not necessarily the idea of stock picking, but leverage picking, right? When do you when do you think about leveraging a a particular theme or even heavily overweighting it in the context of that? So, mm-hmm. um, talk about um, how you think about leverage in portfolio. I know with SMAs, obviously, 
in many cases, you can't necessarily do that. But leverage is obviously used by a lot of individual traders. And as a technician, sometimes you want to leverage a particular theme or idea. So talk about the, the how you think about leveraging um, and what are the what are the maybe not so obvious pitfalls, which is kind of a, a me alluding to the idea of path. So when I look at things like the SSO or the QLD, uh, I look to uh, how they're set up and how they're uh, created and that uh, the the fees inside and the tracking errors that uh, that come about with these things suggest that, uh, that, to me at least, they're not worth uh, participating in it except for very short-term periods of time. That over long periods of time, you're gonna you're set up to have some decay in the value relative to the index. Uh, so I stick away from all of those uh, those leveraged ETFs. If I'm looking for leverage, I I'm going to find it in uh, the options market. So if we go back to what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago about uh, like uh, uh, position sizing, if I'm willing to buy you know 100 shares of Microsoft stock and have a stop loss on it that's two dollars below. I might be even more willing to buy uh, a near-the-money call option that is also going to cost $2 at the same kind of position size and have a lot more leverage involved in that position than uh, I would if I was just buying the stock. So that's how I would look at uh, at using leverage in my portfolios. Yeah, and I'll add to that because I, I put out a paper that won the 2016 Dow Award um, called Leverage for the Long Run. So there's the path point I was I was trying to allude to is something which few do understand. Using that line, I keep saying on Twitter, the um, the problem with leverage is volatility kills you when you have leverage. It's not so much about direction; it's about volatility. So usually, when you're in low volatility regimes, and you know this, Greg, from a technical standpoint, you tend to have more streaks. You tend to have more consecutive mm-hmm. up days in performance in whatever asset class you're looking at. Whereas if you're in more volatile regimes, you tend to have more seesaws, big up, big down, big up, big down. Yep. Yep. Right. So the problem is when you have these big up, big down sequences day after day after day, the daily reset of these types of leverage funds, that's what kills you. And I always reference this this point that in 2008, there was a time, there was a juncture where on a year to date basis in 2008, the three times levered long financials ETF, FAS, and the three times levered short ETF, inverse ETF, FAZ, one long, one short, both 3X. There was a point in 2008 where they were both down like 70%. Yep. One's long, one short. How could it be that they're both you know, down 70%? Because it's not necessarily about the direction. It's about the volatility uh, within that direction. So that the whole point of that paper, if anybody's curious, it's available on SSRN.com. It shows that if you, if you lever when you're above a moving average and you deleverage when you're below it, that ends up being far better than a constant leverage strategy because usually when you're above a moving average, volatility is lower, which means, again, you have more streaks. The daily reset dynamic helps you. now. But that that does become an interesting derivative question, which is, well, what about having constant leverage on equities and constant leverage on treasuries? Because you know, from a portfolio construction perspective, I've done tests on that, that tends to work pretty nicely because usually treasuries benefit from equity volatility except this year, right? Um, yeah. So let, let's talk about that dynamic for a bit. I've, I've hit on this point many times over that this year is unequivocally an anomaly. It's not just about 60-40 having its worst uh, start to a year pretty much ever in history. It's it's more about the sequence interaction of treasuries to equities. I, I don't know if you use treasuries at all from a tactical perspective, Greg, but when you look at the carnage that happened in the bond market in the context of what so far is not tremendous carnage in large caps – does that concern you that there could be a spillover 
meaning that bond market volatility will at some point have nasty ramifications beyond what we've seen in equities. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Uh, not necessarily. I, I look at what's going on in the bond market. I, I, I look for big themes. And I think that what we've seen in the bond market is that, you know, we've had a 30-year bull run in the bond market, and it does seem like it's turning now. And that's a big macro theme, that uh, if it uh, continues to turn, uh, that is sitting out there amongst what's going on, you know, prior to talking about inflation and prior to talking about what the Fed might do. It, it's all couched in that long-term theme of we're not in a third-year bond bull market anymore. So that there's other aspects, I think, that uh, are, are adding to the downside for the for the market. And so that, that's my perspective. I don't actually uh, add or subtract uh, 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 bond uh, exposure to the portfolios that I'm running. Uh, the, the people that are, are uh, hiring me to manage their money are looking for me to do uh, uh, equity and option activity, and that's about all that they they want from me. Uh, I tell them up front if they are looking for some kind of a balanced portfolio or any kind of financial planning, that's not what I'm When you decide how much money you want in the equity market, uh, I'll help you manage that aspect of it. All right. So that that actually dovetails nicely with uh, Mohep's question, who was going to come up here, but I'm going to read it from his DM to me. He's asking, is now a suitable time to start investing in uh, equities, you know, VU or, or the Qs or any kind of large cap type of proxy with uh, dollar cost averaging, or do you think it makes more sense to wait to see if the market goes down? Um, let's let's first, for those that are not familiar with the term dollar cost averaging, talk about what dollar cost averaging is. And from the vantage point of your uh, position running money, uh, when you get a new client or you get new capital, what do you do with it? Yes, but I'm very slow to uh, to deploy capital once I do. That's where a really strong uptrend. Uh, so in an environment like now, I was talking to uh, someone yesterday about uh, adding new capital. I said, you know, uh, in this uh, kind of a highly volatile environment, and we're not confirmed that we're out of a downtrend yet. Take your time thinking about. Uh, you know, what you want to do, take your time getting ready for this because I'm not ready to deploy any of your capital at this point. Um, what what else were we talking about there? The, uh, the dollar cost averaging. Yeah, so uh, my, my perspective and my uh, um, horizon in trading for these clients is not a long-term horizon. So uh, dollar cost averaging is not really a tool that I use. Uh, in my other life, my other role as a, as a professor of banking and finance at Case Western, uh, I tell students that uh, are you know 22, 23 years old that um, they sure as hell damn well better be putting money into the market right now because they've got 40 years and the market goes up a lot more often than it goes down. Uh, if you even if you look at the technical aspects of it, you know 
we hit a, um, a plus 20% drop in the S&P and then uh, retraced uh, more than half of that. And never in the past in the past have we gone into a bear market, retraced more than half of that, and then gone back to retest the bottom. So it's it's got historic precedents. Uh, we all know correlations may uh, just fade over time, and that uh, that may never stick up again. But um, uh, every time we've dropped over twenty percent and retraced more than half of it, uh, it's it's been a, a good thing to get back in. Uh, after you've had uh, somewhat of a, a pullback, and we're now retracing half of uh, what the bounce was from uh, June to the middle of August. So I think it's a, a good time if you're a long-term investor to start putting some money in. I also think it's important to distinguish between dollar cost averaging and buy the dip because I think people often think it's one and the same. You know, dollar cost averaging oh, has no. nothing to do with right. And I, it's like first of all, the term buy the dip has always dr- driven me utterly insane because if you're saying to buy the dip that means that you had cash to buy the dip with or you're leveraging which means you're already maxed out so what's the point if you can't buy the dip because you don't have any cash because you never bought the prior dip mm-hmm. and then upset right so dollar cost averaging is systematic in that sense right and and you ideally want actually if you're a true investor you want actually prices to go down which it sounds really counterintuitive but you know dollar cost averaging works best when you're averaging lower because time is on your side to ultimately go higher right but again few i think really kind of understand or appreciate that yeah i, w- I would say the second question first uh, uh is it better to day trade those leverage etfs i think that's the only thing you should ever do with uh the levered etfs is that you you're only dealing with the intraday trend and you don't have the the reset issues and you don't have that uh long-term decay that's uh that's in in place so I don't think that there's ever a reason to have a, a position trade on. So, and, and if we want to put a time frame on it, I wouldn't ever trade uh, uh, the SSO or uh, the QLD for something longer than two or three days. Um, so the, the next one then is you know, how do you how do you know when capitulation has happened first? And uh, you, for me as a as a technician, I'll, I will take a look and say, you know, if we if we started bouncing and then we undercut uh, and create a lower low, then you know it's there's no reason to deploy any capital at that point. The only reason to deploy capital on the long side is when you first make that higher high. So that if we look at uh, you know the the low that happened on uh, June was it seventeenth or or something like that, uh, and the move up higher. There was really no technical reason to deploy any capital until we got uh, over 416 uh, around the 9th of August. And at this point, maybe maybe we've got uh, just a false breakout uh, and uh, a reset lower. Uh, but uh, from a, um, a capitulation perspective, there's no reason to be out of any position that you put uh, as a long-term buy uh, in that period from like August 9th to uh, to August 16th, there's no reason other than uh, stop losses for individual stocks to to be out of a long-term buy until we uh, undercut the, the the June low, uh, and it's confirmed that uh, it, we are ready for the next leg down. By the way, on that point about the capitulation, I think that's that's also maybe an interesting um, discussion. Because capitulation happens fast, right? So. When you think about deploying capital in what looks like a capitulatory move, sort of the the final washout, it, would your 
would your perspective be to, you know, you have a watch list of individual stocks, you start buying the individual stocks, or do you simply want to get as much uh, beta exposure as quickly as possible with an ETF? Because I think probably more people increasingly are using ETFs for that fast exposure when there's some kind of extreme than you know, right, the right. when you when you haven't had the time to right, exactly. do full analysis on all the stocks yet. And I do something like that, but I also look at uh, the some of the uh, what have been the high flyers and what have been the leaders in the past. And so I'll look at things like Amazon and Apple that have pulled back uh, as a way to get that uh, fast reprint too. So it kind of it, and it's probably kind of the same sentiment, right? As uh, as traders are using. Uh, ETFs, broad-based market index ETFs to get that fast exposure. Uh, those that are not going into the ETFs are thinking about, you know, what's a what's a, a really quality name that's been beaten up that's going to bounce back too, which is kind of the same thinking, right? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of ways that that can go, right? Uh, I'm of the perspective that... Um, yeah, we've put all the we've put a bunch of stocks now into what we've called the technology sector. That the technology sector has been the leader, and now we're worried that uh, it's not going to be the leader going forward. But uh, if you look around in your life, there's technology everywhere. Every new company is being developed based on technology. So I think that there's again there another one of those secular trends that technology is going to be a leader. So I would not expect that companies like Apple or Microsoft that are doing things in the cloud or doing uh, things with new technology are going to be the ones that are going to drag down. So that if you do see that, that's going to be a, a real quick sign for you that uh, if companies like Apple can't sell an iPhone anymore uh, and they've got no earnings anymore, that's going to be a, a real serious problem, right? Uh, so I would expect that what you'll see is uh, the the things that are being dragged down tend to will tend to be those that uh, uh, are maybe more... Uh, from a, a, a younger type of company that uh, has uh, uh, maybe a lot of growth potential, but not maybe a lot of products like uh, Apple or Microsoft or Amazon have in terms of you know, major revenue streams to, to help them uh, weather uh, a bad uh, set of time like that. That would be my expectation. Uh, uh, and maybe answer in the context of, of the separately managed accounts, right? So, it's it's notoriously difficult, obviously, to to from a risk profile for some clients to put an inverse fund. Unlevered, I would I would agree, by the way, is a better way of expressing a, mm-hmm. a bet because you don't have the path dependence issue of the daily reset with leverage and volatility. But but talk about that in terms of when you when you're when you yourself are feeling particularly bearish independent of your stock picking uh, ideas, uh, are you are you expressing a, an outright inverse bet? like that. Yeah. So I, I think that that's definitely a better way to do it than uh, with the, the levered ETFs. But uh, you still have problems with the with the costs in, involved with uh, the inverse ETFs. Uh, you've got uh, market makers, you've got uh, those that have been uh, preferred providers that uh, are helping create and redeem the, uh, the ETFs. And there's costs involved with that. So it's not going to be perfect either. Uh, my perspective, again, I'm uh, an options guy. I, so for me, if I'm going to make that outright bet to the short side, I'm going to buy puts. I'm going to buy spy puts or I'm going to buy Q, uh, triple Q puts or something like that instead. Uh, now, uh, on something like uh, the ARC fund, uh, yeah, I don't even know. Do, can you? I guess there's probably options on the ARC fund. I haven't, I haven't uh, been yeah, all that involved with ARC. So that, by, that, by the way, I find it to be utterly bonkers. No, no really, because I, I, I keep going, it's like, 
options are difficult in and of itself just because you have a, a, a time limit, right, with options. But right. then on top of that, now you've got now you've got to figure out the path in between the time limit. That that just seems utterly insane. The the path dependency aspect seems utterly insane to me. Yeah, I think it goes back to the old adage: if uh, if Wall Street can sell it to you and make money, then that's going to happen. That is one hundred percent true. Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because you know you, you can't blame those that are creating the products because they're trying to you know essentially get you know some revenue from demand that they're seeing. Otherwise, why would they launch it? So it's like it's always a question of you know are these vehicles good for the end investors or not? But you know, sometimes it's the end investors wanting those poor vehicles. Uh, that's the problem, not necessarily the issuers. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, for for me, if it's a if it's a bet that the that anything is going to go short, it's going to tend to be a short term bet because uh, I'm of the the belief that as uh, kind of the statement that Michael made to start with, stocks over time go up. Um, Maybe not ARC, but uh, for the most part, uh, individual stocks over time go up. So if I'm going to make a bet to the downside, uh, I'm going to look for something that's uh, that's got um, uh, a very high delta in it in terms of uh, the, a put option. Uh, it's probably going to be uh, just a, maybe at the longest uh, a one-month uh, expiration before it's in there. And then I'm going to take a look and say, what's the premium I'm going to pay? And and I'm going to limit the uh, the premium to the amount that I'm willing to lose as a bet on that trade. Yeah, so uh, again, I go back to the options market. And there's uh, option strategies that you can use to uh, to capture some of that downside. Uh, so where the the premium that you're actually spending is is kind of low. So everyone probably knows about uh, the, um, the 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 really uh, out there in the market bets that uh, have been created by by some famous people uh, like Taleb uh, that say just to, you know buy those deep out of the money uh, spy puts and buy a lot of them. So if there's a crash, you get a lot of money out of it. Uh, but the other way to look at that is say you know. Uh, combining uh, options and uh, the technicals and say, where do you see uh, that there's been battles uh, from a technical perspective? Where is uh, there been uh, a real battle between uh, buyers and sellers? And if you look at things like uh, like ARC, for example, where you know it had the uh, 2020 low at about 32, and then it came back down to about 36 for uh, the uh, the low uh, in June, perhaps uh, maybe you, your your protection, your hedge against uh, owning a position like that is uh, put options that have uh, a strike price somewhere around uh, the 35 area uh, to you know, get most of that uh, risk below that uh, something just insane happens. Uh, and there's going to be you know there's going to be some cost to that. And Arc is a pretty volatile. Uh, uh, name so that uh, you're going to have to spend a lot for that, but you can uh, mitigate some of that cost by putting on some kind of an option spread structure to uh, to reduce the cost as well. I like to describe option spreads instead of like uh, vertical spreads or horizontal spreads as uh, I want to buy an option that I see as the driver of the trade. So for this one, it would be protection, buying that 35 put. And then I'm looking to see how can I fund that uh, at uh, a much lower cost. So I'll look to see, you know, are there other key areas uh, in ARC's history where there's been battles? And there really haven't been any other battles down till, uh, until you get down to about 22, 23, somewhere in that range. 
So maybe look to short uh, uh, a put at the 23 range so that I'm limiting the, the potential downside that I can hedge, that I can benefit from a hedge. Uh, but it's based on uh, where I've seen put, uh, previous volume to do something like that. Uh, if I don't get enough out of uh, just a single hedge like that, I might uh, put on some kind of a, a longer structured trade like a butterfly that uh, allows me to to sell multiple uh, options on the downside and still limit the risk. I think we should definitely explore more on the option side for a future conversation with maybe a couple other uh, uh, thought leaders ahead in the in the investment space. Everybody mm-hmm. here again, please make sure you follow Greg. And I apologize again for this being somewhat truncated, but hopefully this was worthwhile for everybody here. And Greg, uh, you and I will be in touch. Appreciate everybody joining. I'll have another space tomorrow with Joseph Brown. And uh, enjoy the rest of your nights. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.